Take your Bible and open to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our wonderful journey through this great letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. You know, even though we may not realize it, our clothing says a lot about us. This is why there's such a thing as a fashion industry. People have become experts at using clothing as a form of artistic or personal expression. And though we have different preferences, perhaps, on what style we like or, or don't like, there are certain social norms that we all intuitively understand when it comes to clothing. There are certain types of clothing that are to be worn at one kind of gathering that should never be worn at another. For example, there's, there's a type of clothing you would wear to a formal wedding that has a dinner reception afterwards. And then there's a type of clothing you would wear at home on the couch to watch a football game. And then there's a type of clothing you would wear to a pool party. Now, as long as you wear clothing that's in the range of acceptability for the event you're at, you'll blend in fairly well with everyone there. But if you get it wrong and you wear the wrong type of clothing, everyone will have their eyes on you. Just imagine showing up for a pool party dressed for a formal wedding reception or vice versa, showing up for a wedding reception dressed for a pool party. The same kind of clothing will draw out different reactions depending upon the setting in which it's worn. In the book of Colossians, Paul's been using the illustration of clothing to describe the way that we grow in our faith in the Christian life. Before we were in Christ, there were certain heart attitudes that we wore that were appropriate and fitting for the old man, the way we used to be. Certain sinful lifestyles and choices that were absolutely fitting, though they were wrong, with the old man. But Paul says, now that we have come to Christ, we are a new person, a new, crea a new creature, a new creation. And those old clothes that the old man used to wear are no longer appropriate or fitting for the new man. Just as, as odd as it would be to wear your PJs to a black tie dinner, so it is for the Christian to try to wear the clothes of the old man. That is, the old heart attitudes and actions that characterized who we were before we were in Christ. We've been looking at this process of change in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul lays out three steps for us to grow in holiness. This is also in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just remind you of those three simple steps this morning. Step number one is to put off, put off sin. Step number two is renew your mind, obviously with the truth of Scripture. And then step number three is to put on, put on righteousness. This is how we grow. And so far we've looked at the first two steps in that process in Colossians chapter 3. And the last time we were in Colossians, the week before last, we began in verse 12 to look at this third and final step that we'll be looking at for a couple of weeks uh, yet to come. Now before we move on, let me just show you again the structure of chapter 3 in case you haven't been with us. We won't spend much time here, but notice there are two major sections of the first 17 verses. We have the Christian perspective in verses 1 to 4. And we have the Christian life in verses 5 to 17. And the whole, this whole section really breaks down into two ideas. We are to mortify sin. We've already looked at that in verses 5 to 9. And then we are to put on or pursue righteousness. Let's read together Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 12 down through verse 17. 
The Apostle Paul writes, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So far in verses 1 to 17, we've been looking at a consistent theme week after week. It's a simple theme. Every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. This is the foundation of Christian living. In a nutshell, if you want to know how am I to live the Christian life, look at Colossians chapter 3. Now, two weeks ago, we began in verse 12 by looking at these, these descriptions of who we are in Christ that Paul intends to motivate us towards obedience. Let me just remind you of those descriptions because we have to have this motivation in mind this morning as we move on now to the actual command that Paul gives. We saw the motivation of our identity in Christ, and our identity in Christ broke down into these three descriptions. Description number one, we are chosen. As we saw together, God in eternity past sovereignly set his love on those whom he would save in his son. If you're in Christ today, it's because of the riches of the grace of God extended to you in eternity past. We are chosen before the world began, as Ephesians 1 said. The second description is we are holy, not in this particular context, holy in, in, in our morality, so to speak, although God is, is making us holy in that way, but the, the intention here is that we are set apart, set apart unto God, that God has, has chosen a people for himself, that he is set apart as his. And then finally, description number three, we are the beloved of God, we are beloved, God has not only chosen us in eternity past and set us apart unto himself, but he has given us his covenant love. God loves his people. If you're in Christ this morning, God loves you in Christ. And his genuine sovereign love for us, along with these other two descriptions, are to stand behind us to energize and motivate our obedience to him. Out of our love back to him, we should seek to obey the command that Paul is about to give now in verse 12. So with that firmly in mind, as those chosen, holy, and beloved, here we come to the second part of verse 12, the command, put on righteousness. Look back at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy, and beloved, Put on. Put on. Now this verb, put on, we've talked about it before, but it can be used in a, a literal sense and also a metaphorical sense. The literal sense for this verb is to, to put on any kind of, of thing on oneself, usually for clothing, to put on clothing. But metaphorically, the way it's being used here is to, to put on certain characteristics or virtues, intentions, 
And so we have this, this illustration of putting on clothing, but used for us to put on certain righteous virtues. And remember that the, the Greek text really follows the pattern of the ESV here, more so than the New American Standard, because he begins with the command. He puts the command up front. The very first Greek word here is put on. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's look at the ESV beginning in verse 9 all the way down to verse 12. And you, you see kind of the punch that this command is supposed to have in context. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This flows right out of the context. Remember we talked about how there is no distinction between us, that, that Christ is all and in all. Because Christ is all and in all, Paul says, therefore, put on. All of you, each of you, put on these things. And this is a command. It's not optional for us. It's an imperative in the Greek text. We are those who have a new identity in Christ, and therefore, out of love and obedience to him, we must put on. But as we've noted before, many Christians struggle to gain victory over sin because they never get past the first step in the process of change. If your battle with sin simply consists of trying to stop sinning, then you will always be frustrated and failing. It is true the first step in the process is to put sin to death, put off sin. But in order for that to translate into lasting change, we have to quickly follow the first step with the next two, of renewing your mind and then finally putting on righteousness. So, for the Christian, the goal is not simply to stop sinning, but to be characterized by righteousness. So, for example, if a person struggles with the sin of lying, the goal is not just to stop lying, just to zip their lips and, and not say anything. The goal is to have a mouth characterized by truthfulness. If a person deals with being proud and, and selfish, and I know none of you do, but say someone did, and they, they deal with those sins, the goal is not to simply stop having outward manifestations of those things, but to actually be characterized by humility. You see how the pattern works. The God's intention is that we are actually transformed. It's, it's not just a list of things we shouldn't do. It is a command to actually become like our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen two lists in Colossians chapter 3, two lists of five things. Those first two lists were both lists of sins, things that we were to put off. But let me just remind you of those because those play into what we'll see in this third list that we're going to see in just a moment. But let me remind you, first of all, of a key reality. This is crucial for us to understand. True spiritual change begins in the heart. I cannot express that enough. We'll be coming back to that over and over again this morning. True spiritual change begins in the heart, not the outward manifestation or behavioral changes. The behavioral changes follow the heart. Let's just remind ourselves of the, of the first two lists that we've seen. The first list of sins was in verse 5. Where Paul said, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to 
immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Then the second list was in verse 8. He said, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. The first list in verse 5 obviously dealt with, with sins of sexuality. The second list deals with the sin of anger. And as we examined each of those lists, if, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because they, they definitely lay a foundation for what we'll see today. But in each of those lists, we saw that, that Paul focuses not just on the outward sin, but the heart behind it. The heart sins that motivate those outward sins. In the same way, when now we, we flip to the positive side and we look at positive virtues, Paul is not going to give us simply outward actions that we should put on, but heart attitudes. The, the change has to happen in the heart both on the negative side and on the positive side, determining the, the sins of the heart that must be put off and the, the virtues of the heart that must be put on. Now the five uh, sins in verse 8, the sins of anger correlate to the five virtues that Paul's going to tell us to put on here in verse 12. And so keep those, those sins of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech in mind because those are all social sins. Those are interpersonal sins, the ways that we sin against one another. And what Paul's going to give us here in verse 12 are, are righteous virtues that help us respond to one another in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. They are the opposites of those sins in verse 8. The reason I mention that is because here's really the bottom line. If we're to have unity and harmony here in our church at North Lake Bible Church, we have to become skilled at putting off the sins of verse 8 and putting on the virtues of verse 12. These are very practical for us today because they're at the heart of a healthy church body life, a fellowship together. If we're to respond the right way, we've got to practice these important skills. Now, as we look at these five virtues, here's my plan this morning. I want us to look at each virtue itself in turn. And then after that, we'll look at the list as a whole and talk really practically about how this works in real life. How do we, how do we sort of boots on the ground put this into action? So let's begin by simply looking at the five virtues that Paul lays out for us in verse 12. Look back there with me. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on, the first virtue, a heart of compassion. Virtue number one is heartfelt compassion. The word heart here is a, a modern translation of a Greek idea. If you were, were living in this time period as a Greek person, if someone were to ask you, where do you feel emotion? Where do emotions come from in the body physically? Where do you feel them? you would have said, here in the stomach area, in the bowels. That's, that's really the, a, a literal translation would be from the bowels. That, that's the idea. But obviously in English, we don't think that way. When we think about where do emotions come from, we talk about the heart. And so they've translated it appropriately for us, put on a heart of compassion. That is the place, the seat of the emotions, where true emotion flows from, an emotion that can be felt. That's the idea here, a compassion that flows out of the heart. That's why a good translation here is put on a heartfelt compassion. 
This word compassion simply is defined as a display of concern over another's misfortune. It might be translated as pity or mercy or compassion here as we have it. So when we see another brother or sister struggling under the weight of a trial or a difficulty, our response to them is to be heartfelt compassion. Genuine compassion that flows out, that you, a compassion you can feel. And we see this in, in other places in the scripture. Romans twelve fifteen says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We're to care about the needs of one another in the, in the body with a genuine care, a heartfelt compassion for them. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not to lovingly speak truth to one another in the midst of trial. Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is to lovingly and graciously remind someone to think on the truth in the midst of that trial. That's what we ought to be doing as believers. But as we do that, it's, it's, it's defined by the parameters of heartfelt compassion. They ought to, to, to hear your words dripping with true compassion for them. That's the idea here. Just as our entire human body jumps into action when just one member of the body is in pain, so the, the church body should, should come to action around a member experiencing a trial or difficulty. That's a, the first virtue, but there's a second virtue that follows quickly in this list. Virtue number two is kindness. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness. Put on kindness. What does this word kindness mean? Mean The Greek word is defined as a quality of being helpful or beneficial. So it could be goodness, kindness, or generosity. And we see that, that true kindness is really on display in God himself. If you want to see kindness, look to the character of God himself. Let me just show you this in a couple of places, particularly when it comes to our salvation. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? And tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It is the, the kindness of God that leads us to Him in repentance. Or what about Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7? It talks about our former life. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. Think about that. When the kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the kindness of God personified here. When the kindness of God appeared. Who appeared? Jesus appeared. So if you want to see what true kindness is, look to Christ. Ultimately, the salvation that God has given us in his son is the ultimate expression of, of what kindness is to be. God delights in helping and benefiting others, especially those who don't deserve his help. MacArthur notes that the Greek term refers to the grace that pervades the whole person mellowing all that might be harsh. And this is the type of, of kindness in the congregation that's, that's to be our disposition 
It's an eagerness that's ready to serve, that's ready to benefit others. When you talk to a person who's gifted in kindness, who's mature in kindness, it's the kind of person you talk to in the church and you always walk away refreshed. You always walk away sensing that there's a genuine care for you, that you're not just a a task on their schedule, they're not just trying to get past you to get to someone else, but they're focused in on you and they care for you. This is the kindness that we're to put on as we interact with one another in the church and as we do so, we imitate our Savior. But there's a third virtue here, not only compassion and kindness, but humility. Virtue number three is humility. Verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. Humility is is simply humility or, or modesty is another word that you may use for this. And of course, humility really relates to every single one of these virtues. It's sort of the foundation of these virtues. If you don't have humility, then you won't be compassionate and you won't be kind or any of the other virtues that we'll look at this morning. It's a good reminder that these virtues are all interconnected with one another. As you pursue one, you're pursuing the others and they upbuild each other. You grow in, in all of them as you pursue them. But humility is an essential attitude of the heart of anyone that desires to imitate Christ. You you cannot be proud and be Christ-like. The two don't go together. Humility is essential for us in the church as believers in the way we interact and think about one another. And we see this, of course, in a famous passage in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read several verses here because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4... We have instruction on how we're to selflessly think about one another. But then beginning in verse 5, we have the example or the illustration of how Christ perfectly exhibited this kind of humility. Let's read this together. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interest of others. And now here comes the illustration. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was Christ's humility that led him to the incarnation. Why is it that that God, perfect God, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was eternal, would take on flesh for us, was his humility. Why is it that, that he would then come to die, not just to take on flesh, but to come and to sacrifice that perfect life? It was an act of humility. And why was it? That when it came time to choose the the, the type of death he would endure, that he would choose a cross, the shameful cross, was again his humility. This is, again, a clear reminder that these virtues are virtues because they're found in the person of Christ. 
That's why they're, they're, they're worthy of us to pursue. As we've said before, with the negative attributes, the sins, the reason that we're, we're not to live that way in sexual morality and anger is because those are antithetical to Christ. Those are not part of his character. On the positive side, the reason that we pursue these characteristics is because when we do so, we're modeling the character of Christ himself. So humility in the church leads us then to place the needs of others above ourselves, to make a willful choice to put our desires aside for their benefit and for the glory of Christ. In fact, that's exactly Paul's point in Philippians chapter 2 when he begins that wonderful text. Do nothing from selfishness, but with humility regard one another as more important than yourselves. If you're not humble... You cannot imitate the character of Christ. The Christian wardrobe is incomplete without a robe of humility. We must put on humility. And our unity in fellowship in the church is dependent upon each of us having an individual personal commitment to put off selfishness and pride and to put on humility. That brings us then to a fourth virtue here on Paul's list in verse 12, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, virtue number four, gentleness. Gentleness. Put on gentleness. Now, I, I both love and hate the definition for gentleness, the actual word, because it's a convicting definition. But this is what the word actually means. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Such a key quality for us in the church. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So gentleness, when we hear that word, we're not to think of just sort of soft-spoken, and never making waves. That's not, that's not what it means. It's really a, a partner with humility. It's a way of thinking about ourselves. A, a, a view of ourselves that's in accordance with Scripture. Not having a puffed-up view of ourselves. It naturally coincides with humility. MacArthur says this about the word gentleness. He says, it's not weakness or spinelessness, but rather the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. The gentle person knows he is a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens others, that suffer the burdens others' sin may impose on him. William Barclay says this about this concept. He says, this is the spirit which never loses its patience with its fellow men. Their foolishness and their unteachability never drive it to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath. That's what gentleness is. It's having a right estimation of self that, that's able to receive sin from others without responding in turn or despairing over that hardness of heart. When we are humble and selfless towards others, desiring the glory of God, and they're good above our own self-satisfaction, it produces this attitude of gentleness. And this is the kind of gentleness, by the way, that we're even to put on in those moments where we must confront sin in the life of someone else. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one, that is, go to them, restore such a one, how? In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
Again, this combination of humility and gentleness has never been seen on the face of the planet like it has in the person of Christ. In fact, this is how Jesus describes himself in the way he thinks about his own people. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Famous passage, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, listen to this, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Unlike the heavy, oppressive burden of legalism that the Pharisees were placing upon the people, abusing the law of God, Jesus says, come to me and you will find me gentle and humble in heart. Though Jesus is fully God and fully man in sinless perfection, he did not respond towards sinners with harshness or arrogance. And though he's the most glorious being in the universe, he did not keep himself at arm link, arm's length from sinners, but instead came to the earth to dwell among them, even to the point of dying for them on a cross. And he beckoned them to come to him and find in him spiritual rest and salvation. In fact, perhaps you're here this morning and you are weary and heavy laden. Perhaps you're weighed down under the guilt and oppression of sin. And you're worn out with your attempts of trying to clean yourself up and make yourself good enough to come to Christ. And when you try to make up for your sin by doing good, you only dig the pit deeper than it was before. Friend, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. For though you are guilty and deserving of his judgment, If you come to him in humble repentance and faith, you will find him not standoffish, not arrogant and proud, but gentle and humble in heart, ready to receive the repentant sinner in forgiveness. It's true that Jesus is the God of the universe, and he will judge sin like a roaring lion. But towards those who come to him in humble repentance and faith, he is gentle and humble in heart. Come to him even now if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ. Turn in repentance and faith to this wonderful Savior. And if you're in Christ this morning, understand that we are to be just as approachable as Jesus was. Douglas Moo writes this, A significant aspect of these virtues is that they are often attributed to or associated with Christ. It's as if Paul is saying in the words of Romans 13, 14, that we are to put on Christ. Really, that's what we're doing here. We're putting on Christ. We're putting on how Christ responded, how Christ lived, how Christ interacted with other people. When we relate to one another in the church, we must not do so with an inflated view of our own self-importance, a view of others that says it's, it's a privilege for you to get to spend time with me. This is not the way of Christ. Instead, we're to respond to one another with humility And gentleness, even when, I would say, especially when we are sinned against. When we do this, we are like Christ. But there's a fifth and final virtue that we must put on as new creations in Christ. It's the virtue of patience. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Now, normally when we think about patience, we think about waiting for something to happen. And patience can be used in that sense of, of waiting with a, a trusting attitude, a patient trusting attitude for something to take place. But here in context, remember, we're talking about interpersonal relationships. And the idea of patience here is, is having patience with one another. Here's a definition of this Greek term. It is a state of being able to bear up under provocation, forbearance, patience toward others. Obviously, then, this ties in very closely with the word gentleness that we just studied. We're to have patience with one another even when we're sinned against. You know, sometimes people are shocked when they're sinned against in the church. But that shouldn't be shocking at all. We're just a group of people who've been saved by grace, who are all in process as God is working on us and renewing us in the inner man so that we're becoming more like Christ. But if we live together in any kind of real relationship, you will be sinned against. And guess what? You will sin against someone in the church. It's only a matter of time. It's like saying two Christians get married and they'll never sin against one another. If you're married, you know that's laughable. It's not true. Why do we think in the church that it's not going to be that way? That we can live in close harmony with one another, life on life, and never step on one another's toes. If we're going to have the kind of fellowship that God desires for us, it's not a perfect fellowship in this life. That's what we'll have in eternity. That's what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. We won't step on each other's toes and sin against each other. But here, the best that we can do is seek to grow in those areas. But when we fail, offer patience with one another. Slow to anger, slow to offense, understanding that I'm a sinner too. And yes, you stepped on my toe, but I'll probably step on yours tomorrow and did last month, and I can extend grace to you. Thank God that that's how he treats us. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul gives us this admonishment, I love this, verses 14 and 15. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Look at that list. Unruly, fainted, faint-hearted, and weak. These are different types of people in the church going through different th things. And for all of them, he says, be patient. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This, too, is in the heart of God. In fact, it's this kind of patience that God is currently extending to every sinner on the planet who has yet to repent and bow their knee to him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, But by his word the present heavens and, heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He says, judgment is coming, Peter says. But verse 8 but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. That is, God is not being slow about bringing this promised judgment, but instead, he's not slow as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." Though God has the right to judge the world at any moment that he chooses. He had the right to, to destroy this world and to judge sin the very moment sin entered in the garden, if that had been his choice. But instead, what stays his hand? 
In part, it is this quality of patience. He's patient with you, desiring that you will come to repentance. And this is the kind of patience that Paul is saying we must demonstrate towards one another. A willingness to be sinned against. Long-suffering endurance. You know, we often expect everyone to have perfect patience with us when we sin. And yet when others sin against us, we want perfect, immediate repentance and change. But brothers, this is not the way of Christ. Praise God that's not how he treats you or me. We're to have patience with one another's weaknesses and allow the Holy Spirit room to do his work in the lives of others. So now we have this full list of of virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the virtues with which the Christian is to clothe himself or herself. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a representative list. And it coincides with other lists that we see in the scriptures. Paul gives us two other lists that are famous. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the similarities in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Also, a second list, what about the characteristics of genuine love that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The point of this list of virtues is to give us sort of a, a representative list of the types of attributes that we should be pursuing actively in our Christian lives. When you go to your spiritual closet, so to speak, these are the virtues you're to take out and clothe your heart with day after day after day. It is true that you and I will be tempted every day by our flesh to take up the clothes of the old man. The old man is gone. You have a new nature. But it's like the clothes are still laying around, those dirty, filthy clothes. And our flesh tempts us to pick up those clothes and and want to put them back on. And so Paul is saying, you've got to daily put those off and take up the clothes of the new man that are fitting for the person that you really are in Christ and put on those clothes. You say, well, that sounds really good. But it does bring up a question. How? How do I do that? Because if you're in Christ here this morning, I don't think any of you would say that that you like not being this way, that that you enjoy not being gentle or, or lacking patience or compassion. So how do we practically put this into application in our lives? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning just thinking about that concept. It's one thing to understand the concept. Put off, renew your mind, put on, got it. It's another thing for that to actually happen on a daily basis. Many people get frustrated with the process or give up altogether because their attempts look something like this. Okay, I'm being quick-tempered with my kids. I need to put that off, and I need to put on patience. Ready, set, go. And so they come into the room, and there's their kid that they're struggling with, and he starts to do that thing that he always does, and they start to think, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. And then they blow up and they go right back into 
what they've always done. They say, well, that didn't work. I, I, put off, put on. I, I, I guess it just doesn't work for me. Well, that's not really the intention here. Remember what I started with. What is the key? This is a process of heart change, not behavior modification. So that means if you're going to have lasting change, you have to understand what it is that Paul is really saying must be put off and put on. He's not saying that we should just think about our outward actions and try to cut and paste one outward action for another. A sinful heart will never produce a righteous outward action. If you never deal with the heart, try as you may, you will never have that facade of patience last. It will always be broken through and the heart will come screaming out of your mouth. What Paul is saying is you have to look at that outward manifestation. Let's say it is an outburst of anger or frustration with your kids. And then you've got some work to do to say what are the heart motivations that are driving me to act that way. And what you've got to put off are the heart motivations and replace them with new heart motivations so that from that new heart can spring the outward actions that you know God would desire you to have. So really there are two implications. We, on the one hand, we must not only identify the external sinful behaviors that need to change, but the sins of the heart from which they spring. That's on the negative side. The other implication is on the positive side. We must not only identify the righteous outward actions we want to put on, but the heart virtues from which they will spring. So on both sides, on the, the negative and the positive, we've got to back up and deal with the heart. Now in verse 8, the list of sins that Paul gave us dealt with anger. And so for a test case, let's just stay in the realm of anger but, but I want you to take this and understand this applies across the board to any kind of sin that you may be dealing with. And so think of it in whatever area that you're needing to work on. But I would dare say we could all use some help with being more patient and not being angry. So let's think about the sin of anger. What are some of the, the outward manifestations that come with anger? Well, harshness in tone, harsh words, outbursts of anger, a raised voice. A passive-aggressive behavior, bringing up past wrongs as a way of manipulating the situation, or slandering a person to others. Those are some of the outward sins that we see when we deal with anger. But now let's identify what are some of the outward positive virtues that, that need to ultimately replace those outward manifestations. Well, obviously it would be things like being quick to hear and slow to speak. It would be kind words that actually edify, that are timed for the moment, as Ephesians 4.29 says. And it would be gentleness in our tone. Now, outwardly, that's what we're hoping for. We want to stop this, and we want to start acting this way. Now we've got to do the hard work of getting to the heart behind both the negative and the positive. And I want to remind you of a key verse that we've looked at together in James chapter 4, because I think this is so helpful. Remember James 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's like, where do these interpersonal strife, these angry conflicts, where do they come from, James says? He gives the answer, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That is, these sinful desires that you want and can't have. He says that is the source 
of your external conflict with other people are internal desires that you want. Verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Such a key concept for us to understand. You, if you want to survey your heart and try to begin to unpack what are the heart sins that are causing me to act this way, ask yourself this question. What do I want that I'm being denied? What do I want that I'm being denied? It could be a desire for respect. It could be a desire for obedience, peace and quiet, alone time, a clean house, more money, uh, fulfillment of per a personal preference, a better or more communication with someone you love, the completion of something, a project you've asked someone to do, or being highly esteemed by others. These are just examples of things that, that we might desire. Some of them are not sinful in and of themselves, but when we don't get them, they become this, this source of conflict with other people because we're willing to sin to obtain them. As you begin to answer the question, what is it that I want that I'm not getting, all of a sudden, these selfish desires will come flooding to mind. And what you may find is that your angry responses towards a person are not really about that person at all. They're about the fact that that person is an obstacle in the way of you getting whatever it was that you desired. Now, to bring this home, I want to give you a made-up example. And this is made up. It's not from my life, and it's not from any one of your lives, okay? I made it up, although I think we'll be able to, uh, to relate to this. I want to use this made-up example of a marital dispute, and I want us to look at what happens on both sides of the equation and work through this process to get to what this couple needs to do to change. So here's the situation. A stay-at-home mom spends the day cleaning up after her children. Every time she picks up one thing, one of the little toddlers knocks over three other things to take the place of that thing she picked up. And despite the fact that she's literally spent the entire day cleaning the house, at the end of the day, it's an absolute disaster. The house is a wreck. Finally, at the end of the day, her husband comes home blissfully unaware of the events of her day. He makes himself a glass of water, gulps it down, and then puts his dirty cup, not in the dishwasher, but next to the sink, and then goes and sits on the couch. His wife sees this. And the frustrations of her day come bursting forth in an emotional, angry outburst at her husband as she chides him for selfishly assuming that she would just put away his dirty cup. And on top of that, while we're talking about it, she goes on to explain how she feels no respect from him and how he never helps with the kids or the house and just expects that she's going to do it all. Now, On the other side of the equation, the husband has spent his day at work dealing with angry customers. And not only that, but the customers are angry not because of something he's done, but because of a mistake a coworker made that he's having to clean up and take the brunt of the anger from those who experienced his, this uh, other coworker's issue. For the last nine hours, he's comforted himself with the thought of walking into a peaceful home, having a cold glass of water, and resting on the couch. But now, the first thing he encounters when he walks in the door is an angry rant from his wife over all things, not putting a glass in the dishwasher, and it's all that he can take. 
As soon as she finishes her rant, he lays into her and lets her have one of his own. And he explains that he's sick and tired of working day after day to support this family when all he gets in return is an unfair rebuke over dirty dishes. He explains he feels no respect from her, and if she just knew the half of how hard he works to give her the things that she wants and needs, then she would never treat him this way. Now, I know that's really far-fetched and unrealistic, and you've probably never experienced that, but think of a neighbor or a friend, a coworker. Now, let's back up. What is it that the wife wanted and the husband wanted that they didn't get? In the wife's case, she really wanted a clean house. In the husband's case, he really wanted a restful evening. That's how it began. That's ultimately what they wanted, and neither of them got the thing that they wanted. Now, are either of those things in and of themselves sinful things? Is it wrong to want to have a clean house? Of course not. Is it wrong to want to have some rest after a long day? No, it's not. The issue comes when we're willing to sin to get that thing because it's been denied of us. That's where the sin comes in. When we want something, even if it's good, but we don't get it, over and over again, what happens is these sinful heart thoughts and ideas begin to come up with inside of us. Things of discontentment, falsely judging the motives of others, selfishness and pride, they all just come bursting forth into our hearts when we don't get the thing that we really wanted. Now, the key for this couple and for us is to draft a battle plan that will help them effectively put to death the heart sins involved. And so let's just walk through this quickly. First of all, step number one, they have to put off sin. Now, they have to step back and say the primary heart sins that they're both dealing with are discontentment, pride, selfishness, and anger. That's what they have to put off. And so each day... Throughout the day, not just when the spouse comes home, but from beginning to end all day long, as they're going about their day, when they sense the temptation towards one of these sins of discontentment or selfishness or anger, they've got to put it to death right away. When the very first seeds of it come into their mind, they've got to recognize it and choose to put that off out of their mind and then immediately move to step number two, renew their mind with the truth. So the heart sin pops up, they notice it, they put it to death, and they bring their mind back to the truth. Now let's just say for the sake of the illustration that both the husband and wife have chosen Mark 10.45 as their meditation verse for the day. This is the verse they're going to use to renew their minds. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So all day long, every time they're tempted towards selfishness or discontentment with their role or what they're doing that day, they put that off and they quote this verse, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And they begin to pray, God, thank you that you selfishly came to serve me. Help me now to have a heart of selfishness, selflessness, to just want to serve others. And they renew their mind with the truth. You see... In order for us to do this, just a quick pause on their situation. As we've said before, we have to be memorizing the scripture. You cannot grow in holiness if you are not washing your mind with truth. What will you battle your sin with if not the truth of scripture? And how will you battle with it if you're not proactively filling your mind with truth? Some may say, well, I just don't have time in my morning to add that in. Scripture memory is hard. It takes time. 
Let me just say to you honestly, you cannot afford not to have time in your day to fill your mind with Scripture. That's like, that's like a soldier jumping out of an airplane with, without a parachute because his mission's so important, he just didn't have time to put on the parachute. We, we have to make the time to prepare for the mission of growing in Christ. Godly people have godly minds. Godly people have godly minds. There is no shortcut. There is no plan B. We have to be meditating on the truth of Scripture. And so this couple takes this verse and they begin to internalize it. And every time they're tempted, I mean every time, they bring it back to mind. They force their mind to that truth and begin praying through that truth and go immediately into step three and put on righteousness. What were the opposite righteous virtues that this couple needs to put on? Gratitude, compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, patience, and selfishness, selflessness. Now that they've taken the time to renew their minds with the truth, their heart is now ready and in a place to actually walk in that truth. And so now they make decisions to proactively be a blessing to their spouse and family rather than the thing they were initially tempted to do. And here's how this changes. When we're washing our minds and our hearts with the truth of Scripture, the same scenario happens. The husband walks in and doesn't put his glass in the dishwasher, and the wife now sees it as an opportunity to lovingly serve her husband, and she does it with joy. The husband has been washing his mind with the truth of Scripture, and he doesn't come into the house just to spend time on himself, but he's already ready in his mind to come in and be a blessing to his wife and his kids, to serve them sacrificially as Christ has served him. And so the whole situation changes just by the fact that these two have taken the time to survey their heart sins, put them off, renew their mind with Scripture, and to make real choices to put on righteous actions. This is how it works. Now, I would encourage you to take that scenario and imply, apply it to your own mind and heart, your own life. And this is, as we conclude, this is your assignment. By way of application, I'm going to give you an assignment, and this is it. Intentionally apply this process to one specific sin in your life this week. Don't wait, don't think about it, don't plan to do it sometime in the future. This week, I want you to pick a specific sin that you've been struggling with in your life, whatever it may be, and I want you to intentionally apply the full process back up to the heart things that need to be put off, identify the heart virtues that need to be put on, and walk through the, this process. Pick a couple of verses that will help you turn your mind to truth, memorize them, and begin using them every single time you're tempted towards that sin. If you will do that, if you're in Christ and you will do this process, the Holy Spirit works through the word of God, and I promise you over time, you will change and grow in holiness. Is it work? Absolutely. Is it profitable? Absolutely. Christ died so that we could be made holy, so that we could wear the clothes that are fitting for the new man. It's my prayer that we would become a church who is growing continually in the skill of putting off, renewing our mind, and putting on. And as we do, I pray that we'll become a church that's wearing the clothes of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, so many truths there in that text. We confess that 
While we know these things to be true, so many times we choose the easy path and we, we just give in to our fleshly impulses and desires and we respond in the way we feel rather than thinking on the truth and responding in accordance with what we know. God, we pray that you would help us to become skilled in this process of spiritual change. It's not a, a, a technique of behavior modification, but it, it is a, a God-given gift to us by which the Holy Spirit makes us into the image and character of Christ. That's our desire, is not simply to know Christ, but to be conformed to Christ, that we might become more and more like Him in our daily lives. And so, God, we pray that you would help us in these things. We pray for the Holy Spirit to teach us through the Word, to equip us to grow and to change, to energize us, to, to move forward in serving you and growing in your likeness. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.